This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's sermon text is from the Gospel according to Luke. Our passage is long this morning, so please remain standing if you are able to do so. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And of which, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is... There will your heart be also. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, again, good morning. So we continue on in our uh, series through the unique passages of Luke. What that means is I just grabbed a commentary and in the back, 
uh, where it said there are unique passages that only Luke gives compared to Matthew, Mark, and John. I'm just walking uh, through those. And this morning, obviously, we have our work cut out for us. Not only do we have 22 verses uh, that we need to unpack and cover, but, but in our text, Jesus repeatedly uh, calls for particular actions and a particular lifestyle uh, um, that, that may be the most countercultural aspect of his teaching and of his life. And because it's so countercultural, it may be the place where the church, where we uh, most blatantly uh, disregard uh, his teaching and, and disobey his instruction. And if that's the case, this is the place where we're most severely trapped and most severely enslaved by sin. So I think there are two firsts in the outline this morning. Uh, first, I have five points. I don't know how you go through that many verses and not have five points. I think this is the first five-point sermon I've ever preached. A couple of them are quite short, but I'm not promising a short sermon, okay? Five points, a couple short, no promises on a short sermon. Uh, secondly, I actually want to use a Greek word. It's the same Greek word. I want to use it in each of the five points. And I think in a, in a moment it's going to become obvious why I want to do that. Essentially, it's laziness on my own part. The Greek word is pleonexia. Pleonexia. I'm actually mispronouncing it on purpose to show you that I'm not trying to be smart. See, I'm just so lazy, I don't want to say it right. Okay? It sounds like a serious medical condition. Um, but, but in reality, it's probably the most dangerous spiritual condition that any of us could fall into. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, Take care. Be on guard against all covetousness. This is the key word for the entire passage. Covetousness is our translation uh, of the Greek word pleonexia. And so this morning I want to look at the definition, the nature, the folly, the psychology, and the remedy for pleonexia. Okay, so the defini definition, nature, folly, psychology, and remedy. And I had no idea how to teach this passage. So what I did is I started at the very top and I just kept going until I had five points and I was done. Okay, so we're going to start at the top. Verse 13, the definition of pleonexia. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So almost certainly, this is a younger brother. His dad has passed away, and while his portion of his father's estate by law should be less than his, other, uh, his older brother's portion by law, his brother should divide the inheritance with him. And so you have two brothers arguing over wealth, property, possessions, cash cows, Pardon the pun. Verse 14. But Jesus said to him, singular, man singular, who appointed me as judge and arbitrator over you, plural. Arbitrator is a technical term in the Greek language. It talks about an individual um, who, who had the authority and, and the training to settle inheritance disputes and, and to divvy up property. And, and Jesus is saying, you definitely need an arbitrator, but that arbitrator is not me. That's not my assignment. That's not my calling. That's not my purpose. Jesus' calling, his purpose is that of teacher and that of savior. And so he goes into a significant amount of teaching and he offers some saving. Verse 15, and he said to them, plural. So, so now Jesus, again, is at least uh, talking to the two brothers. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Uh, literally in the Greek, it says every form of pleonexia. So pleonexia means covetousness or it means greed. And it depends on who's being described. Listen carefully. Biblically, greed is to have a surplus of possessions and not share them with anyone in need. Biblically, covetousness is to see someone else's surplus and desperately want it. 
And so, so in our story, the older brother is trapped by pleonexia. One form of pleonexia is greed. He has surpluses and he's not sharing. The younger brother is also trapped by pleonexia in that he's coveting. He, he, he wants stuff more than he wants anything else. Uh, we learn in chapter 12, verse 1, that there are thousands of people trampling each other at this point in the Gospel of Luke. And this man gets Jesus' attention. And the one thing he wants to talk about is money. So, this is where uh, I get my word pleonexia, because I don't want to say greed covetousness all morning long and remind you what the two mean. Okay, if you have more than you need and you're not sharing with those in need, that's your form of pleonexia. If you don't have more than you need and you want your neighbors more than they need, that's pleonexia. The definition of pleonexia is in verse 15. Jesus gives us a definition. He says, watch out for pleonexia for since because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Pleonexia is the belief that life exists when I have a surplus of things. Uh, um, said differently for our day, pleonexia exists when I have wealth. So, so if you have more than you need, you have to watch out for greed, holding on to that as if it's life. And if you don't have more than you need, you have to watch out for covetousness, desperately seeking life in the abundance of possessions. But both of those realities are founded upon and based upon the one idea that I am living or I am really alive. I, I really matter when I possess more than what I simply need for this day. Remember, money is not the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Corinthians 6, but the love of money and the craving of money is. So pleonexia plagues all of us, whether we have money yet or not. So that's the definition. Listen to the nature uh, of pleonexia. I'll tell you a story. Uh, my daughter Riley, she's my second child. She's now nine. Uh, she was uh, almost a year and a half old, and, uh, and she walked up to me one morning and she said to me, what amount? And I said, excuse me? And she said, what amount? And, and her mom, Trisha the translator, uh, was out of town for the weekend. There was no easy way for me to find out what Riley was saying. So I tried to first distract her. And then that, that didn't work. I secondly ignored her, okay? That's what, that's what a wise dad will do. All right, a few, a few minutes later, Riley walks back in. She's a little more agitated. Dada, what amount? My baby, baby, slow down, say it again. Wada mal. So I get Maddie, her three-year-old sister. Maddie, come here. Riley, tell Maddie. Maddie, what am I? Maddie's like, I got no idea. <laughs> Every five minutes, she, she, with increasing frustration, she'll dwaddle into the room, and, and she will ask me the same question over and over, and she is a persistent uh, little woman. And so finally, Trisha's on a getaway weekend with the girls right before Braden is born. I'm not supposed to bother her, but I call her. And this is back before she has a cell phone, so I call the hotel, and I leave a desperate message for her. Baby, I'm sorry to bother you on your getaway weekend, but I have an emergency here. This is... And then when she gets on the phone, I'm like, Riley keeps saying the same word over and over and over. And she's actually getting really mad about it, and she won't leave me alone. So Trisha's like, put her on the phone. Put her on the phone. She says, Mama, what about? She hands the phone back to me, and Trisha said, she just wants to know what that smell is. And she hangs up the phone. Love you too, babe. Have, have a great weekend. I was like, oh, of course, what a mail. Yeah, that makes total sense. And so then I did what you're supposed to do. I checked her diaper. 
Nothing there. Nothing there. So I was like, Riley, show me. Show me the smell. So we walk around the entire house to nearly every room, and she asked me over and over and over, what a mel, what a mel, what a mel. And I'm not smelling a darn thing. I'm like, I have no idea what she's talking about. So I bend down in front of her, and I just, I start, I just go to begging. I'm like, Riley, I have no idea what that smell is. I am so sorry that I don't know the smell. And she is flabbergasted, and she yells right in my face, what the mel? <laughs> and it hit me. I put my hand right in front of her mouth and I said, Riley, go, ha, ha. <laughs> Take that commercial. She goes, ha, ha. And she goes, Damel. <laughs> With Trisha out of town, I did what only a good dad would do. I gave her the healthiest breakfast I could possibly find, which was a box of Slim Jims. <laughs> and her breath was horrid. I know what you're thinking. You're like, what does that have to do with Planexia? First, kudos for using the word. I'm proud of you. But here's the point. While all of us can sense and in a sense see the effects of greed and covetousness in our world, very few of us actually think we're greedy and covetous. Or as greedy and as covetous as we actually are. Look in the text. In Jesus' teaching as a whole, if you were to take all of his teaching and put it into a pamphlet, pleonexia is the only sin, verse 15, that you have to take care and be on your guard against. Because blindness to the condition is part of the nature of the condition. Take care is literally be on the lookout for, beware. If you walk into a yard, your mind doesn't instantly think about the dog that might attack you. If you walk into a yard that says, beware of the dog, you're going to think about the dog in the yard that might attack you. Jesus is saying, consider your heart in the same way when it comes to greed and covetousness. Be on your guard. It's, in my mind, it elicits the imagery of military personnel staying awake all night, uh, guarding, uh, keeping a vigilant watch, watch for a subtle and deadly attacks. And the point is this. We, like the two brothers, rarely think that we have a problem or a major problem with pleonexia. Or we always think the people around us have a greater problem with it than we do, but the smell of it emanates from all of us. It has been famously and repeatedly said that Jesus did not say, beware of sexual sin in your life. Uh, inspect your life for sexual sin. Why not? Because when you're sinning sexually, you usually know it. But not so with greed and covetousness. No other sin does Jesus say, watch out for it and be on guard against it and be suspicious of it in your heart. Why? Blindness to the condition is part of the nature of the condition. And so I would just suggest as we move forward that our assumption would be that we're more guilty here than we realize, which means that we're more enslaved here than we realize. It means we're less human here than we realize. It means that we need a greater work of salvation here than we realize. Let's keep going. Third point, the folly 
of pleonexia, or, or maybe better said, one foolish expression of pleonexia. One way pleonexia plays itself out in our lives. Uh, greed and covetousness, uh, by definition, again, is that belief uh, that we have life when we have more possessions than we need today. And by its nature, we are all uh, more susceptible to it and, and, and likely more guilty of it than we realize. Verse 16, Jesus tells a parable. He tells the parable of a fool, and this fool is full of, this fool is shot through with Pleonexia. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store up, uh, lay up my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. So he's already got a savings account for, for future needs. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store, lay up, literally, all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. All right, this is actually the word that means to cease from labor. Labor. It doesn't mean uh, a breathing technique or some, some, some deep tissue massage. Uh, he's telling himself to retire. Relax, retire, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, I just want us to stop for a second. I want us to consider how countercultural this is, how crazy this is going to sound to our ear and to our culture's ear. Do you realize in verses 16 through 19, Jesus describes the American dream? Further, Jesus, in these four verses, he gives what modern American Christians call wisdom. A man has assets. He works hard. He produces an income from those assets. He reinvests profit to multiply his assets and to multiply his income. Then at some well-calculated point, he retires and he lives a life of supposed peace. Jesus' fictional fool is the American dream. Watch the commercials while golf or tennis is being televised. We are told over and over and over, this is the ideal life. And Jesus says, that guy's a fool. Jesus says, our cultural evangelical dream is foolishness. I'm actually very thankful that Jesus elaborates this on this in verse 21. It's helpful because if he didn't elaborate, I would be tempted to define this folly in a way that jives with my culture and with my mind and with my behavior. But what does he say the foolish behavior is? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself instead of being rich towards God. Think about what he does not say. If he had not given us verse 21, what, what would we have assumed that he was going to say? So is the one, the fool who builds bigger barns and wasn't content with what he had. So is the fool who stops working and retires too soon and the market crashes. Uh, so is the fool who lived in luxury. Uh, so is the fool who, who stores up for himself for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivations, as if we're supposed to store up, but just not for the wrong reasons. In the Greek, it simply says this, so is the one who stores up for himself, period. The foolish thing was the first set of barns. The foolish thing was the first set of barns to the extent that those barns were built to house what this man might need in the future. Fool. So is the one who saves for himself. Now, breathe. 
Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Come on with me. Breathe out. Don't check out on me. I know that all of the warning indicators on your brain are flashing red. I know that we think that we've gone berserk here, that this is absolutely crazy. But just stop and think with me about the sovereignty of God. Do you realize that we're back into the same conversation about money that we've had three times over the last year? We're back into the same conversation about money and surplus and savings. In our study of Philippians, we saw that the Macedonian Christians were applauded by Paul for their generosity. And we learned that generosity is not the rich giving out of their surplus. Generosity is poor people giving what they needed to live on presently so that other people can have their present needs met. The Macedonian Christians, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and and the widow that Jesus watches in the temple. In our series in Exodus, Exodus 16, and then 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 again, we saw that the Bible calls believers with surplus not to something that you would call generosity, but the Bible calls us with surplus to something you would call justice. Giving anything we don't presently need to meet the present needs of anyone in need. And now today, Jesus, God, the model Christian, Foolish pleonexia to set aside present surplus for perceived future needs instead of giving it to the presently needy in your context. I will say what I said a few months ago. I have no idea what to do with this. I have very few ideas of what this particularly looks like in our context. I have no idea what to do with this. And further, I am so personally guilty here. I am as guilty as I was two months ago. I want to say what I've said before. Somebody please, somebody please bring a biblical argument for why we should handle our money any differently than what Jesus says here. Please, anyone using a Christ-centered paradigm for the Bible, bring the biblical argument for us saving for ourselves Somebody please, so we can make sense of all the money that we have in the bank when there's so much need around us. I am being serious here. Please bring the biblical argument for doing anything other than what Jesus said here. I have dialogued, I have asked, I have prayed, I have gone to my elders, I'm asking for more of it. I want this conversation. The stupidest thing I can do and the stupidest thing you can do is to go home and try and figure this out on your own. If we learn nothing else from the rich fool, let us learn what is obvious in the parable. He is not just self-consumed. He's self-sufficient. Look at it. Verse 17. He thought to himself. It literally is, he had a dialogue with himself. Verse 18. He talks out loud to himself. The word I is found six times in three verses. The word my is found five times in three verses. We have to engage our community in this conversation. It's not going away. It is defined this way, living off the belief that I'll have life when I have an abundance of things. And by the nature of it, we're being pummeled by it more than we could ever imagine because we're more trapped by it because we, we think we can handle it on our own. And then Jesus tells the story of a man he calls a fool. It's the man living the American dream. 
And when Jesus elaborates on the folly, he says the folly is found in saving for yourself when you have leftovers. The folly is not saving present excess for future luxuries. The folly is saving present excess for future needs, eating and drinking. Fourthly, the psychology of pleonexia. This is what I mean by psychology. The deep-seated internal realities that pleonexia creates that drives us to set aside for ourselves. Jesus mentions three. I think they're used synonymously. I don't think there's a big difference between them. These are the deep-seated realities. Anxiety, verse 22, 25, and 26. Worry, verse 29. Fear, verse 32. Here's the point. There's something going on at the level of the heart here when it comes to our savings. The rich fool, verse 19, he kept saving and he kept saving and he kept saving so that at some point he could say to his soul, soul, everything's okay. You can be merry now. And Jesus knew that as soon as he called saving for ourselves foolish, that we would be instantly anxious. And that's why, starting in verse 22, he begins to shepherd us and he begins to care for us because he knows the indicators are going ballistic. We have an emergency here. Pick up in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, uh, so in verse 14, it's clear Jesus is talking to the younger brother. And, and verses 15 to 20, 21, it's clear that he's talking to at least both brothers, but probably the whole crowd. And now in verse 22, Luke makes it really clear he is shepherding his disciples. He is shepherding those who have given their lives to follow him. He is shepherding those who, who are learning what it means to believe the gospel. He is shepherding those who are learning what it means that God Almighty is daddy. He says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, future tense, nor about your body, what you will put on, future tense. So now think, if our interpretation of verses 15 to 21 is anything other than don't set aside for future needs, these verses make no sense at all. Think about that. If we think verses 15 to 21 is just Jesus simply trying to get us to save some money but not put our trust in it, that we think, ah, in 15 to 21, he's going after the heart of the matter. He doesn't really care what I do with my money. There's really no reason for verses 22 and following. But but if Jesus really expects us to not save for ourselves, uh, anxiety in the future is a critical issue. Verse 22. Jesus is teaching us that our setting aside is driven by anxiety, fear, and worry. And we can know this because as soon as he says, don't do it, we freak out and we automatically dismiss him. It can't be what he actually said. And so Jesus is shepherding us here. He wants more for us here. He does not want less for us here. He loves us. He died for us. He wants something better for our life. He doesn't want us living in anxiety, fear, and worry. This is not Jesus saying to you and to me and to his disciples, don't you dare break the rules and you better get this right. He's saying, please don't live anxiously. Please don't live full of fear. Please don't be driven about to and fro by worry. In verses 24 to 28, Jesus shows how out of control we truly are in this life and he shows us how loving and how caring and how in control our heavenly father is. Verse 24, consider the ravens, okay? They're considered the most despicable of all the birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. They don't save for future needs and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
disciple of Jesus, he's saying you're precious to God. He is saying you're so valuable in the heart of God. Do not be anxious about what you're gonna eat in the future. Those birds are nothing over there compared to you. And he feeds them. Then, 25 and 26, he's saying your anxiety does not produce anything. He's like, you can't add a single hour to the life that God has sovereignly ordained for you to have. And he's like, if you can't add an hour to your life, why are you worrying about having money for food for a time that you may not even be alive for? And then, and then right after reminding us that we're out of control and that we're powerless, he again reminds us of the Father's power, the Father's control, the Father's care, the Father's provision. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and thrown in the oven tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you Oh, you of little faith. In other words, God, he's saying, if God makes sure that the grass is clothed with the splendor of the lilies as long as it's alive, how much more will he not sovereignly provide for you and the clothes and even the beautiful clothes that you will need? He couldn't be more clear. Anxiety drives us to save for a future in this life that we may never reach. And anxiety is the opposite of faith and trust in God. A trust that he will feed us and clothe us splendidly for as long as he wants us alive. And I know this sounds incredibly crazy. I think this is the most countercultural, radical part of Jesus' teaching. I think this makes love your enemies look brilliant. This is crazy. But Jesus, he's not just saying it's foolish when we do it, he actually commands us to not do it. Verse 29 Do not seek strive for, present tense, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. All the other translations make it obvious that Jesus is saying, don't seek in your present circumstances what you will eat and what you will drink in the future. It's a command. And again, it is absolute craziness to our ears. But Jesus knows that. Verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I have no idea what this looks like. I know that we have to work it out in community. I have no, I am not standing up here and for a second telling you that I am perfect or righteous or even close when it comes to this teaching, but it seems to me that we're more blatantly disobedient to this teaching of Jesus than any other teaching I know of. Which means we're far more enslaved to this sin than we can imagine. Which means that if we do not enter into community and dialogue about this, not to earn God's love, but because he loves us, if we don't dialogue about this and begin to see progress with this, our experience of freedom and joy and worship cannot increase. I again would ask us, I would beg us, don't just take this home, chew on it, refute it, decide you're gonna do something about it all on your own. You can't. Let's conclude with the remedy for pleonexia. So what remedy does Jesus give for this subtle and dangerous and deadly and enslaving condition? So I think in two words at the end of the text, uh, the remedy is found in faith 
And the remedy is found in perspective. So first, faith, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. Okay? So we've all seen so far that anxiety, worry, and fear over one's life uh, is the opposite of faith. So when he says, fear not, he's also saying, don't continue in the posture of little faith. Verse 28. So Jesus is calling for faith. But what is he calling us to believe? What is he asking us to have faith in? Verse 32, keep going. For, since, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, don't seek life in in, an abundance of possessions because it's God's mega delight to give you the abundant life of the kingdom now and the eternal life of the kingdom in the age to come. And I think with you, why? Why don't I believe that? Why is that so hard to believe that God is already my father, that, that God already loves me like a beloved child, that God has already given me the kingdom, that God will delight to give me the kingdom in increasing ways, and one day he will give me, in a sense, all of the kingdom is co-heir with Christ. Uh, why do I have such a hard time believing that? Well, I've been selfish, and I've been so blind, and I've been so arrogant, and I've been so fearful, and I've been so dis obedient. But what is Jesus calling me to? Not works, faith. Faith in the truth that Jesus was selfless, Jesus was aware, Jesus was humble, uh, Jesus was trusting, Jesus was obedient, and then he died for our sins. Jesus gives his soul over to death in our place for us. No one obeyed this teaching more perfectly than Jesus. He never calls us to anything that he didn't do and he won't do in us. You'll never find anyone with more riches than Jesus, bigger barns than Jesus, more barns than Jesus, more wealth and more income than Jesus. And yet to take care of the desperate need of others, he became a man, the son of a working class man in a backwater town. He continued towards more and more poverty his entire life. He became homeless, no no hole uh, to call his home like a fox, no nest to call his own like a bird, no rock to lay his head on. And at the end of his life, he is naked, poor on the cross. His last piece of clothing is being gambled over by Roman guards. And he did all of that to have us. He did all of that for us. He did all of that in our place. He's like, fear not. Not because you can do it, but because you have faith in the one who did it. How will we be freed up from looking for life in the abundance of possessions? We have to find life. We have to receive life. We have to enjoy life abundant and eternal in Jesus. And so the remedy for pleonexia first is faith, and then it's perspective. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. So so here, Jesus states specifically what it looks like to be rich towards God, verse 21. Uh, What it looks like to to seek his kingdom, verse 31. He says it means selling your surplus and giving it to the presently needy. But look at the perspective he gives uh, to that giving as you continue on in verse 33. He says, provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure, with a storing up, with a laying up in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So regarding perspective, Jesus is saying first and foremost that every dollar of your surplus that you give to the physical needs of others now, every dollar 
will be exponentially yours forever in heaven. But secondly, Jesus is also saying, he's also saying, let me, let me help you see the folly of looking for security in life and storing up earthly goods. Not only might you, verse 20, die tonight and, and thereby lose the opportunity to help someone with your money, thereby lose the opportunity to enrich your eternal existence forever in heaven, but also treasure on earth is so fickle. He's like, treasure on earth is always susceptible to sinners and to natural corruption and disaster, thieves and moths. Just think about the last 10 years. Think about the history of man. We will become instantly anxious if our life is going to be held in treasures on earth. We're done. And so Jesus, he's motivating us. He's saying, follow my teaching on abundance by giving, uh, by, by looking at it from, from this angle, by thinking about this perspective He's like, I'm promising exponential reward for every investment you make in the kingdom. He's like, I'm I'm reminding you, if you die tonight, that money that's in the bank, you cannot give it away and bring it with you into heaven. It stays behind. And and he's saying, saying, listen, uh, the chances are actually really quite good for the money you have in the bank right now that it will not last as long as you do in this life. I'll conclude with this. It's actually an extensive quote of a historic fact in a commentator. He said, in 1923, the world's most successful men met at Chicago's Edgewater Beach Hotel. Assembled were the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, uh, the canniest investor on Wall Street, a future director of the World Bank for International Settlements, and the head of the world's largest monopoly. A few years later, this was their fate. Moss and rust, okay? Thieves. Charles Schwab died in debt. Richard Whitney became insolvent, did time in Sing Sing, and was blotted out of the who's who, of the international who's who. Albert Fall was pardoned from prison so that he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, Leon Frazier, and Ivor Kruger, uh, the match king, uh, they all committed suicide. All learned how to make money. None learned how to live. All the bulls became lambs. He says, Schwab's bleeding in 1930 was the most woeful of all. Listen to what Schwab writes. I'm afraid. Every man is afraid. I don't know. We don't know whether the values we have are gonna be real next month or not. And then the commentator says, so pitiful is the poverty of the rich. Actually, we'll let Luke have the last word. 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Jesus, before we thank you for the gospel, we just come before you and confess our sins. We are found out yet again by your word to be rebellious and disobedient and arrogant and foolish. God, we confess our sin. Jesus, we run to you for your forgiveness and to your righteousness and to the hope of your Holy Spirit to the inheritance that you will give us in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you exhibited in your life exactly what you're asking for here. Thank you uh, that you have said that not only will you give us your righteousness imputed to us by faith, but you will increase this righteousness in us by the work of your spirit. Thank you that we don't have to be less than human uh, as much tomorrow as we are today, but that you will empower us for change. Thank you, Jesus, that you became naked poor on the cross because we have tried to make a life of being rich. 
Jesus, would you please give us your Holy Spirit? Would you please draw us together in community? Would you please uh, 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 take away whatever enslaves us and whatever shackles us, whatever binds us, please shatter, shatter those shackles so that we might speak to one another honestly, we might learn from one another, we might understand what this means. God, we realize that on uh, the lazy river that is our culture, we are floating farther and farther away from what you call beautiful and righteous and holy and freeing and good. And God, we don't want it. We want what's from you because it is best and it is beautiful. Jesus, please have mercy on us. Please change us. 